Welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast, where we explore breakthrough innovations for mental illness. I'm Tommy Moore, host of this podcast, Mind Medicine Australia, which is a charity committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness by expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. We are supporting the development of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy programs within Australia by providing educational material and events, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, and of course, supporting clinical research. In furtherance of this mission, the Mind Medicine Australia podcast aims to facilitate engagement between clinicians, researchers, mental health practitioners, and other leaders in psychedelic-assisted therapies to provide expert opinion, share research results, and ultimately help to educate the public about potential new opportunities in patient treatment. If you wish to support this mission, there are a number of ways that you can do this. You can join local chapter groups and be amongst the discussion, keep up to date with relevant information, and also help to share this information to your local community. You can, of course, share this podcast, leave a review, that really, really helps, um, as well as provide comments or questions for the podcast through Apple Podcasts, and that also really does help. And these are all zero-cost ways and simple ways that you can support the development of these types of therapies within Australia and also around the world. If you wish to be of financial support to Mind Medicine Australia, you can, of course, donate on our website. And if you wish to donate to the podcast directly, you can also do that through Patreon. Check out the show notes for all the links. Thank you for your support and interest in this emerging space. All right, let's get into it. Dr. Dan Engel is a psychiatrist with a clinical practice that combines aspects of regenerative medicine, psychedelic research, integrative spirituality, and peak performance. His medical degree is from the University of Texas at San Antonio. His psychiatry residency degree is from the University of Colorado, Denver, and his child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship degree is from Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Engel is an international consultant to several global healing centers, facilitating the use of longstanding indigenous plant medicines for healing and awakening. He is the founder and medical director of Kuya Institute for Transformational Medicine, which is in Austin, Texas, Full Spectrum Medicine, a psychedelic integration and education platform, and Thank You Life, a nonprofit funding stream supporting access to psychedelic therapies. He's also the author of The Conscious Repair Manual, which is a practical guide to recovering from traumatic brain injuries, as well as his more recent work, A Dose of Hope, which is a story of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD is in the final stages of FDA testing. Clinical trials are reporting a 70% cure rate for a condition that claims thousands of lives every day. But until it's fully legalized, MDMA is still classed as a Schedule One drug, saddled with years of misunderstanding, misinformation, and misuse. So in his new book, A Dose of Hope, Dr. Dan Engel shows you the treatment through the eyes of a fictional patient to show in-depth conversations between doctor and patient and learning about the history of MDMA-assisted therapy and help to understand why it helps. And in the conversation that we had, we chat about the direction medicine is going. We discuss the implications, expressions, and subjectivity of trauma, as well as the psychology and biology, or hardware and software. 
We chat about bringing compassion and love to every aspect of yourself and activating that inner healing intelligence that we all innately have access to. I honestly learned so much from this conversation with Dan. He's a pioneer in transformational medicine and, and a true spiritual healer. Just before we dive into this conversation, I will remind you that the information provided in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical recommendation, diagnosis, or treatment. The use of information in this podcast is at one's own discretion and is not an endorsement of the use given the complexity inherent in these medicines and the current viable widespread illegality of their usage. With all of that said, I bring you Dr. Dan Engel. There we go. Dr. Dan Engel, welcome to the podcast. Tommy, it's great to be here, man. Yeah, I'm really looking looking forward to this one. I feel like it's been a little while since um, we've kind of explored MDMA and I guess MDMA is the psychotherapy on the podcast. And obviously with your new book that it's, that's just come out, I'm, I'm really keen to explore that and explore some of the work that you do. But perhaps the best place to start is how do you describe what you do? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, every time I've asked that question, I think I probably say it a little different. Um, right now, the practice that I'm involved with and that we're launching through our center, Kuya's, a practice of transformational medicine and how I describe transformational medicine is the blending of har hardware and software technologies. So hardware technologies bring, being brain and body, software being mind and soul. And underneath that umbrella with hardware technologies, it's everything from regenerative medicine and performance medicine. And then the software side, it's everything from uh, an empowerment-based educational model to help people learn how to fish, so to speak, and understand that process of transformation, uh, as well as in integrative psychiatry. So different narrative styles of being able to incorporate and integrate a full sense of self and do that all while still looking at the organic side. So if somebody has depression, anxiety, PTSD, et cetera, what are the organic neurochemical and more global physiologic issues that we have to understand too? Any comorbid infections, uh, adrenal or thyroid dysregulation, immune system dysregulation, like, et cetera. So we've, we've now launched from allopathic medicine to functional medicine, which is better, but still not the whole picture. And now we're moving into transformational medicine, which has a bit more of the, the whole person involved. Yeah, brilliant. And is that all encompassing uh, psychiatry or are, we, are you working predominantly with ill patients or are you working with healthy people wanting to, to improve their life in that sense? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Uh, you know, we're, we're pretty uniquely situated where our uh, mothership is, you know, our center here in Austin is right next to an optimization center. Uh, one of the more well-known gyms in the country. And so by proximity, it's fascinating and phenomenal and, and quite the treat to be able to work with clients who are in a performance and optimization orientation, they're already doing relatively well. Uh, maybe there's not an obvious crisis or pain point, and they want to go from good to great. And then we put them through our suite of services, and we see them accelerate and go from good to great, and we can track all of that. 
And the, largely the same therapeutic suite of services is also helpful for people going through a healing process. And the big five psychiatric epidemics, depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, and pain, we can use IV nutrients, uh, targeted supplementation, based in individual diagnostic assessments, uh, as well as contrast therapy and alternating hot, cold experiences. We have a 20-person sauna and three cold plunges, as well as flotation therapy. We have three float uh, suites. And so there's, there are ways to not only orient the psychology and the neurology, right? We're coming back to software and hardware, uh, towards its optimal homeostasis. We can also accelerate that because healing includes coming back to baseline and homeostasis. And we can also accelerate homeostasis into optimized performance. So it really depends on a person's entry point or what their primary goals may be. We still put everybody through an individualized diagnostic and therapeutic assessment and treatment protocol. We, we have essentially the same building blocks. We use them differently for each client, but our, our suite of services, um, it, it hits that sweet spot between the healing community and the performance community. And so by nature, we also have a, a real, quite a large community space. So we have a, a lot of overlap between people who are going through a performance side of things and a healing side of things. And to be able to integrate those two different communities, because most psychiatric communities, clinics, et cetera, there's an orientation to, I am this person with depression and I've had it for so long and it's been treatment resistant and it's, you know, kind of either spoken or not spoken, explicit or implicit. The idea is I'm always going to have this depression. I'm always going to have this PTSD. I'm always going to have this addiction, et cetera. And by being able to put people through a similar therapeutic process, orient the storytelling around a transformational arc individually and communally, now people just naturally start to shed those old identities and start to see like, we're all human. We're all in this <laughs> different fractals of the hairless monkey suit going through an, an experience of transformation <laughs> and everybody does it differently. And everybody looks different uniquely and everybody's goal and gifts are unique and, and exquisite. And when we can simply boil it down to a shared humanity, then it becomes a really exciting opportunity to, to have the community actually be the most fertile ground to heal not only people's individual experiences, but we're also talking about healing the entire medical paradigm and shifting the way particularly psychiatry is practiced and what we know is its potential. Some of that in, in a beautiful, elegant way. And just coming to that, you know, people coming into this, I guess, functional medicine from going good to great. Like often with Western medicine, we've, it's, we're so narrow on, you know, diagnosing illness and diagnosing illness and fixing the symptoms where it's like, that's one thing, but the whole theme of it is promoting wellness. And no matter where you are on that spectrum, mm. whether it's all the way on the side of depression, all the way on the side of anxiety, at the end of the day, we are just trying to promote wellness and, and all of these practices are going, going to do that wherever you are on that spectrum. And I think it's, it's exciting to see that, you know, all of these new, well, not new practices, but having these heat exposures and cold exposures and, and then using 
what we've learned through Western science and understanding the underlying physiological processes that are happening, then people are starting to, you know, finally go, okay, well, actually there is merit to this. So in that sense, Western science is incredibly helpful, but also mm -hmm. it can be very reductionist to look at things in isolation. Um, but mm -hmm. let's open this conversation to, to the new book that you've, you've just written with Alex Young. Now, you chose to tell this story from the perspective of a fictional main character. Now, I know you've done and, and continue to do work with MAPS, so you've probably worked with many different patients doing this type of therapy. Why is it that you chose a fictional character in this book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Uh, and I do 100% support MAPS. I'm not directly affiliated with their organization. Um, and more of, of an advocate and a cheerleader for them. Um, I've taken their training uh, to be a medical director of an MDMA-supported psychotherapy clinic, uh, as well as to facilitate that therapy for clients when they come into our center. Uh, and I believe wholeheartedly in what they've helped to champion as far as this resurgence of the psychedelic renaissance, so to speak. Um, very much appreciate Rick Doblin and his entire team's uh, tireless work over the last 35 plus years. And um, so that's just a mention of kind of my, you know, affiliation and fondness for their, uh, their organization, but I don't have any cl direct clinical affiliation with their uh, clinical phase three trials at this point. So in regards to writing the narrative from the place of a fictional character, I wanted this to be as engaging and as um, engrossing and uh, available for people as possible while still being informative and giving a lot of information and telling the, the arc and the storyline of a person's process going through the contemplation of this work. Like how did Alex become familiar and even interested in this and what the usual mindset and questioning of that um, curiosity can look and feel like. And then moving from that place of curiosity into choice and then preparation for this work. And then once the preparation has been done, what does the experience look like and feel like? And then after the experience happens, what is the integration like? And all three of those primary stages, preparation, experience, and integration, are important. And it's up to us as a medical field working in this psychedelic medicine arena to be able to highlight the importance of doing it well, so to speak. So I wanted to make it um, informational, but most informational texts on medical issues and therapeutic approaches are pretty dry. And uh, my co-author and I, uh, Alex and I decided to make this um, unique in a way um, that was different. And we could uh, slip in a lot of the key take-home points wrapped in a narrative that would keep people pretty engaged in and finishing it to the end. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's such a power of storytelling and it's like anytime you're watching some tv series and you know you, you get to know the main character and you almost 
adopting that main character as you're watching and you're always like in his or her position um, as you're watching through it and like experiencing from their perspective in many ways. So I feel that having that kind of um, storytelling involved and then the reader will kind of adopt the position of, of the main character and kind of almost feel it as, as they're going totally. through the, those kind of yeah. experiences. Um, let me, let me highlight just one of those things that you mentioned, the storytelling piece, I don't think can be overstated. It's so critical. Uh, and it's funny that you're bringing that, that specific terminology and, and you're, you're picking up on that piece. Cause just a couple of hours ago, I was uh, doing a sauna with uh, uh, Boyd Vardy and he came into town and, and he kind of comes in and out of Austin. And I don't uh, know so much of his background, but as we got to know each other, other colleagues and friends and my business partners and him. So he came over to do a sauna at Kuya. And uh, we just got to talking about storytelling and, and then wrapping up the appreciation for what we're doing to retell the story of medicine through the individual experience of people being able to retell their own story as they go through a therapeutic process. Because when we go through this arc of transformation, there, there's much of our old story that we have the opportunity to honor, to give gratitude for, and to leave behind, like we would do with an old pair of shoes. Like, wow, thank you for walking miles with me over treacherous terrain and getting me to this point. And I've grown out of some of these old belief systems and some of these old experiences, the, way, the ways that I might identify myself. And if I'm going through a therapeutic experience or deep transformational experience, then it's natural for me to go towards a new story to start creating things from maybe a, a place of new empowerment or new vision or recognizing that a good portion of what I've been doing has been helpful to get me here and I haven't been serving a large portion of my calling or my dharma or my the thing that brings me most alive in my life and so I'm going to I'm going to reorient my my new story my new trajectory my new priorities value systems etc towards creating this new experience and yet in between those stories in between the old story and the new story there's a lot of rich space to explore. And that's really what medicine work is all about, is, is allowing more space to be in, like Miles Davis you know, would talk about, the, the magic is the space between the notes. And very much so the magic, you know, it's all magic, it's all beautiful, it's all life. And, and the most transformational process is that time in the cocoon when the caterpillar is turning into the butterfly and yet it's highly uncomfortable it's non-linear it's not convenient we can't predict it <laughs> you know we don't know when we're going to pop out or what it's going to look like when we pop out and we have to have massive faith when we're going through that process so i think you're you're highlighting a really important point around the storytelling piece that also connects to the community piece because in the community piece is when we witness the storytelling of our own process, even if we don't know what story is even getting worked through or towards what end, but to have the community and the, the supportive anchor of other brothers and sisters, so to speak, going through a similar process, that's so um, supportive 
because we're born to bond. And in the time of COVID, when we're so isolated, it's this very communal, communally oriented, mutual storytelling that we're coming back to. This is part of the blueprint of our, of our evolution, is storytelling around campfires and around ex personal experiences. So you highlighting it in the book and the way that we drafted and presented a dose of hope, I think is phenomenal. And I hadn't, I hadn't actually until this moment made such the connection. And maybe it was just coming off of this conversation with Boyd and the, the community aspect and the storytelling piece as the very mode and methodology that we wanted to present this, this more informational medicine arc and is through the storyline of a dose of hope also the power of the the story of yourself and how you tell yourself as as a story because a lot of the time when we're storytelling it's about you know different aspects of ourself and i've actually been um recently listening to um it's called your symphony of selves um james oh, yeah. Badiman. yeah yeah so, it's great book. um he's great it's um yeah no really really cool book and i love how he's presented all of the different, you know, selves that we, we have. And, mm -hmm. you know, often we're told through whether it's different spiritual practices or, or traditions that, you know, it's, it's this one essential self. And of course, you know, at the essential self being, being the awareness or, or our consciousness, but then these individual selves and like the identification of body or identification with this part of ourself that we need to be able to come to accept and bring self-compassion towards. And I think part of this journey for, for people, I mean, in the in context of, of a mental illness, coming to the place where they can accept that aspect of themselves, because that's the blockage. Because often, you know, you can represent yourself as a different self and you are seemingly fine, but you, I guess you're just kind of blocking out those those other parts of yourself and just presenting a certain aspect of yourself so i think how we tell our story of ourselves and our all of our different selves is going to be incredibly important in transformation and and promoting that that wellness mm -hmm. absolutely yeah the 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 place of radical compassion to support the coming home of all of our parts is such a reframe from how we have in our modern society and our Western culture have been oriented. We typically are super unkind in the way we talk to ourselves. This harsh, overbearing drill sergeant of a superego telling us what we're not doing and what we should be doing, and we're not doing it enough, and we're not doing it good enough, and all this like the identification of our own self-worth and self-value is so frequently tied to our performance and what we do or, or how we're seen or now in the age of social media, how many likes we have and what's our social capital. And the reframing of the narrative that we have to earn success, we have to earn love gets to be retold through this radical compassion that accepts and welcomes everything. Even the parts that we would shame and guilt and make wrong and not want to put on our Instagram and Facebook profiles <laughs> and not share with the world. But what does it look when we are radically compassionate, as you say, with, with all the parts, life, 
changes when that happens. Absolutely. It's, it's this self-compassion that we need to bring towards our model of what an ideal reality is like for us because, you know, we work so hard to force things into fitting into the model that we've created for ourselves. And so I really like, I've, I've written this down, but it's a, um, I think it's a quote. I'm not sure where it's from, but it says, basically, you can devote your whole life to the process of making sure everything fits within your model or you can devote your life to freeing yourself from the limits of your model. And I really, I think that really speaks to that and, you know, bringing that mm. self-compassion, that level of surrender to the place you are now, because that, that is, that is all we have. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Now let's talk about uh, more specifically MDMA and its effectiveness in terms of psychiatry and the, the clinical approach. So obviously in the United States, it's going through phase three trials with the FDA. So it's looking very, very promising with remission rates being very, very high. Um, So Mm -hmm. it does seem to be an inevitable process that it will eventually be accepted and be integrated into Western psychiatry, which is very, very exciting. Let's talk about trauma because MDMA is, or MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is most closely being used to treat trauma. Well, that's what the, the FDA trials are doing. So let's talk about trauma. What, what is trauma? What are its implications? Mm-hmm. Oh, good question. Yeah, traumas, uh, there's so many different ways to identify it. Very many of those different ways are cultural, linguistic, um, depending on the the current zeitgeist or worldview of a given community or culture at the time. Because uh, what what's traumatizing for us now might not have been traumatizing for people 100 years ago. And so you have the context of trauma and how it's processed and, and the meaning we put around it. And yet we can also come to universal languaging about the, the experience of what it means to go through a process that is traumatizing. So if we were to come up with a simple definition of trauma, it'd essentially be something like it's an injury or a wound that is so severe that it overrides our capabilities and our capacities to self-center um, and self-regulate and therefore heal it on our own. And it leaves a residue that impacts how we see and experience ourself and the world. So it has those three uh, components, the injury itself and what that wound was, the overriding capacity, and oftentimes it feels overwhelming and maybe even annihilating. And as a result of overwhelming our capacities, it has this third piece, which is the ongoing residual challenge and negative impact in how we experience our lives. In terms of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, someone will have a traumatic experience and obviously that's, it's entirely subjective or it seems to be entirely subjective how traumatic the experience could be for, for one experience. It might not be traumatic at all for someone, whereas someone else might develop a a post-traumatic stress disorder from that. So it's clearly subjective and very individualized as to whether that trauma will develop into, into PTSD. So how does it affect someone's life, someone carrying 
PTSD? What what are some of the things that they experience on a day-to-day basis? What mm-hmm. are they avoiding or what mm-hmm. is it blocking? Yeah. So so let's take both parts of that question. Uh, that question one is around the subjectivity. And the, the second part of that is around the expression of it. And what does how does trauma get encoded and how does it expressed that would generally meet the criteria for PTSD? So if we take the first part, the subjectivity piece, yes, highly subjective. Because it's not so much what happened, but how we experienced what happened. So the trauma itself, how we experienced that trauma, and what is the story that we're telling ourselves about that event or that trauma. That's the subjectivity piece. And yes, yeah, so that is very unique and individual. It's also collective, as we were talking about before. Um, we have these shared understandings of what's right and wrong, and that evolves over time. Truth evolves over time. Our personal truths evolve over time. Our communal and collective truths evolve over time. However, the universal truths remain constant. Thankfully so, because these are the universal laws, so to speak, that govern the universe and, and how it itself has been put into motion. Like, for example, everything is on an evolutionary trajectory in the universe. Our known universe, our own planet, all the ecosystems among our planet, all the ecosystems in the known universe, they're all evolving towards a greater and greater evolutionary process that we might call um towards an end goal. Personally, that would be self-realization. And and in the arc of birth and death, the universe is constantly going through that entire cascade, right? So everything's in flux, in change, in growth, and in evolution. When we tell our stories collectively, they have a different weight and a different meaning that involves some of how we narrate the experience and how we might tell ourselves a particular story. There's also the objectivity of trauma. So for example, objectively, transgenerational trauma passes between generations to offspring. And that is another way to say that learned behavior is also passed on from parent to progeny, from the family to the next generation. You can see that in animals, right? Rats rats or mice running a maze who know how to run that maze and they have babies. Those babies are better at running the maze without ever being taught by their parents than babies whose parents never ran the maze. And that's one of a thousand examples we could give. And so learned behavior gets passed on. That's an objective process. Unless we start getting into like the soul patterning and where consciousness is before and after a body and how life itself becomes animated and what a soul-centered medicine approach would look like as it relates to a person's character, calling, and their own imprints. So this is a bit of a more esoteric conversation as it relates to multi leveled examination of what makes us human, body, mind, spirit, heart, and soul. All of those levels are implicated. All of those levels are also important in how we 
experience life and therefore what stories we tell ourselves and in, as it relates to trauma now we start sharing part of this interface between subjective experience and objective experience so there are changes in the brain that happen through ptsd and trauma we can see those there are changes that happen physiologically that we can see now those are objective changes but did they start with the subjective experience Yes. Now, if somebody gets smashed over the head, because I also work with a lot of people with TBI and traumatic brain injury, oftentimes people have a massive traumatic brain injury. There's a neurologic component as well as a psychological component. And we can talk about the differential between neurologic, more of an objective science, and psychologic being more of a subjective science. So we have this interface, which is really exciting because that's that's the the platform right now for modern neuroscience is to surf that interface between subjective and objective reality, as well as take this more global perspective when you bring in psychedelic therapies around the transpersonal process that's highly subjective, but it's not only subjective to the small self, it's subjective to the soul and to the highest self, spirit. When people go through, you know, Johns Hopkins study of uh, people who were medicine naive, having their first psilocybin experience, and greater than 90% of people with a breakthrough dose and a breakthrough experience in a facilitated environment, safe set and setting, had one of the most top uh, five spiritual experiences that they ever had. And that lasted 14 months out when the study was concluded. Like, so you have this experience, somebody goes through, somebody's never done medicine before, grows through an experience, has this mystical revelation Many of them said that they experienced, you know, like William James talks about in the varieties of religious experience. There's the noetic, like can't quite uh, experience the truth that I'm being in touch with and where it's coming from, but there's something outside of my old reasoning, my old way of seeing. It's ineffable. It's, it's hard to put into words. It's uh, There's an experience of oneness. There's an experience of timelessness is like all these characteristics that include this sense of awe and wonder. And then we can also unpack what awe and wonder actually mean, like our connection to something larger than ourself, the experience of humility and the recognition of how small we are in reference to the larger whole that is life itself and the known universe and multiverse itself. So when we get into the transpersonal conversation, then it's well, like the our limits, what you were just talking about, the quote that you just shared, like, let's take off the limits of our perceived reality long enough to see what's even possible. And that takes a lot of courage to do. It takes a lot of courage to surrender into an unknown experience like that, where the ego doesn't know the difference between annihilation and transformation. Because now it's just unbound. And the ego likes consistency and safety and, and things that are, um, you know, deterministic and reliable and psychedelic states are not that. They're very nonlinear. They're very um, unscripted. And we don't know what's going to happen, but that's also the magic and the, the beauty of it. So when we get into all of the unpacking of what just a usual experience might look like, well, that gets a little bit more complex when we're talking about going through a PTSD healing, 
because PTSD does have a particular expression. And it's also phenomenal when we start looking at something like MDMA because MDMA is so effective for people who are stuck in trauma because of how it works in the brain and what it does to the brain and what it allows that person to get in touch with. So PTSD typically, or somebody in a trauma experience is, PTSD by definition is the reliving of that trauma, whether you know it or you don't. So now there's, there's this new appreciation that the classic PTSD, like somebody in the battlefield, very clear, obvious trauma, or somebody who got smacked upside the head or uh, was just horribly abused or uh, violently assaulted or had to flee from a raging tsunami or hurricane, you know, it could have been a, a human kind of um, assault or a, like a nature kind of assault. Um, that's very obvious trauma. And that's classic PTSD. What's called complex PTSD is when there's not that kind of overt obvious trauma, but there's a consistent degree of negative impacts or what are in from the child psychology, because this is oftentimes where we start making meaning of life and ourselves is during our childhood. These would be called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. So the serial experience of negative childhood impacts that might look like softer abuse than obvious physical or sexual abuse, but like rejection, abandonment, betrayal, uh, humiliation, that leaves a particular characterologic wound. And a core wound can start to set a person's worldview about themselves and about life and living and yet, if we're not, if we're only looking for the the big <laughs> nail that's like this incredible, incredibly intense one assault moment versus like the smaller impacts over a longer period of time, then we're going to miss the fact that many people have a daily experience of complex PTSD. And so, if we can, and we are, we're reframing our understanding of trauma and how, how quite wide it is. And the last thing I'll say about this piece is that the trauma that we're healing doesn't even have to have started with us. We were just talking about this transgenerational trauma. That can't be overstated either. My parents are amazing people, and yet they were also products and children of post-World War II experiences where their parents were, like my grandmother was a B-2 bomber uh, welder. I think, I think they call it like uh, something the Riveter, like Rhonda the Riveter or something like that. She was that, that was my grandma. And my grandfather was a B-2 bomber pilot. They came out of the world very shattered in many ways. But the cultural orientation, like if you weren't just sweating bullets in bed, reliving nightmares every night, with it was at that time called shell shock, then it wasn't intense enough to pay attention to, you know, just stiff upper lip, keep marching through. Like, you know, I learned playing soccer early on, like if you're not bleeding, you're not injured. Well, those kind of programs were, were gradually starting to unwind. And we're recognizing that my mother's, because that was my mother's parents, my dad's parents were in their own way, very traumatized, not through war, but through abandonment, 
significant betrayal, suicide, addiction, that, that, that's a whole nother kind of trauma pattern. And so my, both my mom and dad have these programs around how they self-regulate and how, how available they are to go into those deep, uncomfortable spaces because they're carrying that genetic imprint, that, that psychological blueprint. And yet my parents didn't have access to these tools because this was the war on drugs in the 70s and 80s. And, and, and these tools, even if they had a, them available, they would have thought that they were horrible because of the propaganda of the war on drugs. So they haven't really had the opportunity to heal all of that trauma. So, and yet I'm still carrying that load. Carl Jung has this amazing quote, something to the effect of uh, children are cursed with the burden of their parents' unmet needs and unmet healing. Right. So we thankfully in this like new modern era of this new psychedelic renaissance, we have availability of so many tools that our parents and our grandparents and our great grandparents didn't have. So in some way, we can actually see this as the opportunity and the privilege to heal. Not only what is ours to heal, but what was theirs to heal that we're still carrying that they weren't able to because they didn't have access and maybe the freedom to do this kind of work. So it's a bit of a reframe because for a while, even for me, it was like, I just felt burdened by my ancestral trauma. And then thankfully with aids of elders and medicine work is that was a story that I was able to rewire and retell and, and say like, wow, thank you, ancestors, parents, grandparents, et cetera. Thank you for doing the absolute best you knew how to do in any given moment, because we all are. And thank you that I have the privilege to be able to do this healing work that you weren't availed to. And let me do my work on behalf of my ancestors, on behalf of my family lineage, to clear what is mine so that my offspring, my children, and the people that I engage with in my community don't have to carry the burdens. And I can actually stop the trauma pattern here. And then all of the, the generations to come are more freed up to be who they are and their own superhero expression in the world, because we're going to need future generations to be really freed up to be amazing humans and figure out how to get our collective blue marble floating in space on a sustainable trajectory, because the water's boiling, the earth is in crisis and it's kind of like all hands on deck time. And the best work I think we can do is to clear as much of our own residue, our own baggage, our own projections, our own old stories, and support the coming generations to just come in and fly free to be whoever they need to be, whoever they choose to be, and really teach them about what it also means to do this work on behalf of the generations before us and the generations to come. And we do this work in order to become what one of my teachers would say is fit for service. And, and that is a privilege just in of itself. You've um, spoken that in, in a beautiful way. And I like that you, you know, we speak to the, it's collective humanity in that, you know, it's with all the problems that are happening in the world, it's, putting more pressure on ourselves to do that isn't always going to be the best or isn't the best approach. It's we need to 
firstly, get ourselves to good health. That's, that's what's paramount. That's what we need across the globe. And once people are in good health, they're much, much better at making decisions and working collaboratively at problems. But because it's such a, a stress and angsty driven society, especially Western culture, and I speak to most of the world as well, it's very go, go, go and high energy. It's, there's never time for us to actually sit back and, and realize and go inwards and find why these things are coming up in the way that they are. And coming back to your, your earlier point about um, like objective or, or relative truths, and I think truth that is being defined as objective or absolute you know, has to be eternal, has to be unchanging. Truths are discovered, not invented, and transcultural is existing in all cultures. And so in order for truth to be absolute, it must hold these qualities and beliefs cannot change a truth. And I think that part of this psychedelic experience that many people are, are being able to experience is that it brings them closer or helps them understand what the absolute truth is. And so when they're reintroducing their ego or reintroducing their sense of self back to normal waking consciousness, they can then put together these stories that we tell ourselves are again, they're, they're relative truths, whether or not they, you know, are backed by science or backed by religion or whatever it is. A lot of stories that we tell ourselves are, are relative to us. And so in the context of trauma, the story that we tell ourselves about the trauma is subjective. And so launching us into this psychedelic state is being able to then come back to that normal waking state and looking at those stories that we tell ourselves in such a different manner, they're still going to be there for the most part, but they don't hold that same grip as, as they used to. And I think with MDMA in, in psychotherapy, it's that people are able to, to look at that trauma. It's not that we're trying to get rid of that experience. It's that we're redesigning how we approach that memory. And so we can look at that memory with more compassion and we can look at that memory with less tightness. And, and instead of it being a burden, it can be a place of, of total acceptance that we can then look forward and, and go along with, with our lives. We also mentioned the, what neuroscientists are, are working on, you know, the, the mind brain problem or the connection between them, the mind and brain. And I think it's a really, really exciting space. And, you know, when certain parts of the brain light up, we know that that correlates with this experience, but we can't, you know, we can't quite put a finger to consciousness itself. We can't quite say here it is, or there it is, but what we can say at the moment is that when this part of the brain lights up or when this part of the brain lights up, this is the experience that we have. And so we're kind of drawing all these links together and kind of creating a map of possible states and experiences that, that our brain can access in, in some ways. So let's talk about um, the psychology and biology. So again, brain, mind, and in many ways of um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So what is happening to our brain? And then what is happening as a subjective experience and, and those correlates? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll take, uh, we'll take them both. 
So objectively, what's happening with MDMA in a therapeutic process, and we could say this too in a recreational process, because objectively, the same kind of cascade is happening. So neurochemical cascade releases a variety of different neurotransmitters, uh, predominantly serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, um, to varying degrees. And it also has this neurohormonal or neuroendocrine cascade, and that's predominantly oxytocin. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are the principal characters and uh, the principal like effects. So when we have that noradrenaline rush, it brings us into action and awareness. When we have the dopamine rush, it brings us into a place of motivation, uh, willingness, and ability to like lean in, so to speak, um, to experience where the nuggets of truth and reward exist. When serotonin happens and that cascade occurs, there's more of a, an ability to be open, um, available, the mood is uplifted, um, we're more um, experiencing our um, shared connection. It's a bit of a, a dovetail too with the hormone oxytocin and its bonding capability, like what will happen with mothers when they're breastfeeding. And so we have all of this happening and what its effect is uh, still objectively in the brain is that it has three primary, again, not an exhaustive list, but three primary efficacies for supporting particularly the resolution of trauma and the ability to communicate what hasn't been said up to this point. Because MDMA is also an amazing interpersonal therapy agent. Like originally it was used in couples therapy. And so what happens in the brain in these three primary effects is that the activation of what would be called our prefrontal cortex or right behind our forehead gives us better witness. The fear center is downregulated and softened in its like power and valence. And um, therefore, with that witness, there's less tension, like you were using that word before less tension, less guarding, the armor starts to drop or the ego defenses start to become more flexible and we can start to work around them, work with them and gradually allow those to dissolve to the experience of becoming greater connected to uh, trust, security, safety. And also the memory center comes online to a greater degree particularly in its connection with the prefrontal cortex. So our witness is available to access better memory and tell the story, tell the story of the trauma and start to work to resolution of that trauma, like welcoming the, the tension, welcoming what was unable to be spoken or acknowledged before because it was so overwhelming. And at the time of the trauma, the ego came in and put these ego defenses in place in order to keep us safe. That's understandable. It's actually evolutionarily advantageous, especially in the midst of the trauma if we didn't have the ability to leave or to uh, remove ourselves from it. 
especially if there was an experience of, of helplessness or powerlessness. And oftentimes that's the case when this kind of trauma gets encoded is there's a, a sense of being so overwhelmed by it, potentially that the characteristic or characterology of that would be like helplessness. Um, and then the experience, because it was so overwhelming and I feel helpless, the potential for annihilation or just being so engulfed by it. So the ego comes in out of safety, sets up these ego defense mechanisms that could be dissociation, denial, um, uh, reframing it to tell a different story that was maybe more acceptable. Um, and there's a variety of different ways that the, the ego will start to tell story that might oftentimes not be very accurate or not be the full picture. So when we have less fear, better witness and better memory, now we can see more clearly the fuller totality of the experience and how it's affected us. So that's what's happening neurochemically, neuroanatomically. And then what's happening interpersonally, more on the subjective side, is that person's, particularly in a the therapeutic context, like if a person's coming through an MDMA-supported psychotherapy session, then they know, because part of the preparation is to help them understand the experience, help them understand what might happen, also help them let go of expectations because we don't know what's going to happen. We're going to allow whatever's um, coming to the surface to be acknowledged. The maps languaging around the therapeutic engagement with the given person of what's rising to the surface of their own individual truth, and to come back to that term truth, is they would describe this as everybody's own internal inner healing intelligence. So our inner healing intelligence, wherever we think that comes from, our own psyches, souls, guidance, um, our own kind of inner um, sage and, and like inner wisdom keeper, like wherever that comes from, this is what rises, that inner healing intelligence we all have deeply within us that makes us human, everybody has it, that starts to rise to the surface. So now we have more availability, if we're going to come back to the parts and the symphony themselves, we have more availability to be curious about the parts that are now giving, uh, given the microphone, so to speak. <laughs> you know, it might be part of our uh, subconscious that was shut off, like uh, a part of our um, victim, because we all have that victim archetype as well. And a part of us that felt overwhelmed, threatened, potentially annihilated, um, especially if we're younger and we don't have the same kind of character defenses or ego understanding as, as we do as adults. Because when, when we're experiencing trauma as children, the narratives get deeply wired and, and we try and make sense of the world from the child's mind when something horrible is happening. So that part can start to now come online. Whatever it was, the shame, the guilt, the avoidance, the made wrongness, like particularly from a child's perspective, it could be something like mom and dad getting a divorce and that child feeling like they were, the, they were to blame. They weren't good enough. Mom and dad are leaving because I've done something wrong. There's one of another thousand examples we could give. So that those parts start to be able to come online or it might be the rescuer part or the protector part that was coming in that says that, 
oh no, we can't talk about this thing or we can't look at this thing because it's going to be so overwhelming. It, it was already, you know, red, red light, red alert. We had to intervene. We're not going to go there again. So if the protector archetype comes in and says, oh, we can't look at it, or if we do look at it, um, something really bad's going to happen, um, or a whole host of other internal dialogues, we start to look at these internal narratives and give compassion to them and get curious about them and give them the time to speak and to be validated. We all want that. Our egos want that. All parts of ourselves want to be authentically expressed and validated. So we're, we're doing compassionate, like humanitarian work on our own egos through this process. And, and the MDMA process allows for that to occur because the safety and security in a therapeutic environment has already been solidified, ideally, in the vast majority of cases. But that's part of why we would do a dyad therapy. It's usually a, ma a man and a woman, mutual therapist offering support to a given client so that we can provide more of like the therapeutic arc of healing a lot of those early experiences. So safety and security is there. Now I'm more available to talk about it because of the neurochemical cascade that's helping me feel safe and connected to this therapist who I just experience as really wanting only my best good and interest. And they're highly trained and I can kind of surrender to the entire process. So that's part of the felt experience from the client's perspective. And then from the therapist's perspective, we're just consistently opening up the dialogue. And okay, great. Tell me about that. And and then what did that lead to, or what's underneath that, or um, that that one part that you just brought up, but then kind of danced around. Can we hear a little bit more about that? You know, we use our intuition, um, trauma informed languaging. Um, Mark Wallen's really amazing at this in his book. Um, uh, it didn't start with you. It's all about transgenerational trauma. And so when we get into this trauma-informed dialogue and being able to track the trauma language, then we get more of these guideposts to go to the original event or the core wound, if that's available and the person's able to do that and, and it's ready, we don't force that, but it's, if it's available, then less. Yes, let's go to the core and really work that with and through towards some degree of resolution and reconciliation. But again, we're not going for that as the goal because really over-eager therapists may mean well and may be altruistic in their intention, but if they're forcing their clients towards resolution, then that's a bypass. And there may be more of the trauma that needs to actually just be heard and held and metabolized. Um, but you know, this is where the magic is. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a it's a very exciting time to see in many ways how quickly MDMA, especially in the last few years, is progressing and being more and more widely accepted and, and understood. I think that understanding is 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 a, is a really important part. And obviously there's incredible efficacy in the clinical approach. And as we talk about this, um, and and coming back to like the neuroanatomical aspect of it you know we talk about the amygdala and that that fear response or that overactive amygdala and that overwhelming fear response and how that links with uh structures in our brain like the hippocampus and when we recall that memory and its link with the amygdala then you're, you're getting that overactive 
response every single time you recall that trauma, where through an MDMA state, toning down that valence of that fear response from the amygdala, then recalling from the hippocampus, again, I, not an exhaustive way of putting, you know, memories are stored here and fears here, but in mm-hmm. general neuroanatomical terms, you know, mm-hmm. we're recalling that memory and then you get that overwhelming response, but through that MDMA state, we can recall that memory in, in such a more compassionate way. Um, so it's this fear extinction and memory reconsolidation that's really, I guess, that the highlighted importance of MDMA. Um, so it's obviously effective in PTSD. Do you think that it may have transdiagnostic action? Are there any other ways that MDMA might be useful? This is, I guess, um, in theory now is, do you think there might be, could it apply to depression or, or anxiety? Are there specific examples that it might be helpful with? Do you think? A hundred percent. I think there's a lot of uh, transdiagnostic potential. Um, I don't think we're going to see that in clinical application for a while because MAPS has done a really good job to become friends with the feds <laughs> and work towards reclassification, which is no small feat. It's taken us 30 years to get here. And thankfully to Rick Doblin and MAPS's tireless work, um, we're close to completing phase three trials. We're going to be legal probably in the next 18 months, probably by the beginning of 2023. And straight out of the gate, I think there's going to be a pretty consistent requirement of staying in, in the bounds of PTSD. Uh, hopefully, that includes the growth from just classic PTSD to include complex PTSD, because so many people experience that. And we do have good diagnostic checklists and screenings that can offer a wider inclusion net for people to be able to work with MDMA-supported therapy. So that's more on a regulatory side. Now, in best-case scenario, (laughs) if we could draw the the most awesome uh, diagram of potential entry points for MDMA therapy, I think MDMA therapy is amazing. It doesn't necessarily have to be psychotherapy with a a therapist from a particular lineage orientation. I think that's the best starting place for sure. And then we gradually allow greater flexibility. For example, what does it look like um, when it becomes an interpersonal dialogue coming back to its original experience as an efficacious treatment for couples therapy? Like it's an amazing tool for a couple to be able to open up their communication lines and to be able to bring whatever they've been withholding and not feeling able to completely be transparent about or talk about. It's like whatever we've been avoiding, MDMA therapy allows us to bring that thing or that bag of stuff into the center of the circle so that we can look at it. That has so much application. Yeah. And I think there are a ton of people that have a style of depression that would lend itself well 
to working with this particular tool. Um, I think there are many people who have a particular style of anxiety and a style of addiction and a style of so many things. If you think about addiction, like Gabor Mate says, it's not so much asking why the addiction. It's more like, let's ask the question, why the pain? Because if there wasn't pain, then there wouldn't be the need to numb the pain. And so if we know there's pain and if the pain's related to trauma, and we have an agent like MDMA-supported therapy that can help relieve trauma, then yes, even though MDMA has an addictive potential, which it does, and it doesn't have a physiologic addictive potential, but the felt state can have some people feeling that they want more of that. And that's one of the reasons it's in Schedule 1. And so we have to be judicious because all psychedelic therapies are big tools and all tools deserve to be wielded well. And all tools also have their sweet spot. All medicines have their sweet spot. If you're using too little, there's no effect. And if you use too much, it becomes poison. So when is the right time to use it? Who's the right person to use it? How much do we use? How frequently do we use? How do we insert this therapy in the midst of everything else that a person might be doing for their optimal lifehood? There's, this is where the alchemy and the artistry, as well as the science, comes in. And that's the threshold that I think we're on with transformational medicine, is really being able to look at it from so many different angles and not just regulate such a potent therapy to only people that have this obvious constellation of symptoms that gives them the, the diagnostic entry through PTSD to be able to receive this treatment. How can we make this kind of treatment available to the people that need it the most? And I think that's part of our challenge, but even greater than that is part of our opportunity. And it's, it's a part of our calling. It's what needs to happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you've highlighted the importance of intention behind using such a substance because, you know, if, if we kind of just release it out there along with the addiction potential, people really need to understand like you said, it's a tool and every tool in the toolbox has its purpose. And so we need to understand what each tool does, how to use that tool, not just use it haphazardly, but really understand what that tool is and how to apply it and how to use it properly is, I guess, what's, what's most important about this. And with its transdiagnostic action, I think you're 100% right that there's huge potential in MDMA to be used in various types of illness and or to promote wellness in many aspects, whether it's family relationships, um, couples, like you said, I think relationships is, is going to be a, a really big one in this with the release of oxytocin in that being, you know, feeling more connected and having that mutual understanding between two parties. And of course, you also mentioned different uh, mental illnesses have different signatures and often depression might come out in, in such a way that MDMA might be helpful in, in using and, and helping to understand those origins and births of, of certain aspects of pain. When someone has PTSD, it's likely that they're comorbid with the different mental illness as well. Like where we've got this list in Western science of symptoms and you tick off and you know, you fit in here or you fit in here. I mentioned this earlier, but I think this really does apply to 
the trans diagnostic action, it's, it's again, it's, it's promoting that wellness and healing these blockages that we've had across many generations. And so having MDMA accessible to people who need to dig into their, their subconscious and bring out those aspects of themselves is going to be so important in improving humanity as a whole. And, and again, yeah, being able to heal the planet and heal humanity. MDMA seems to be very unique compared to other, I guess it's, it's a non-classical psychedelic, but it does seem very, very unique. I haven't really come across anything that is even remotely similar to MDMA. Are there any other substances that, that work in a similar way? Like obviously there's the classical psychedelics that work quite similarly, like you could psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, they all work similarly. MDMA seems to be in a ballpark of its own. Is, is there anything that works in a similar way? Mm, yeah, good question. Yeah, traditionally, or I suppose if we were going to talk about a specific classification, MDMA would be described as an empathogen. Some people have described it too as an intactogen. Um, basically, that empathogen is, essentially helps us generate empathy and compassion, particularly compassion for ourselves. And uh, it is unique, for sure. There are analogs that are pretty similar, like people have got into the lab organ from the lens of organic chemistry and started tweaking with molecules and and molecular bonds to create similar analogs but the classic is still mdma mda um, is another one sassafras is uh, a botanical that the concentrated oil has a very similar experience um, most of what people are describing sassafras as now is just mdma because the concentration that would be required is significant and the cost would be significant. Um, but there are aspects in nature that are kind of similar in their neurochemical and physiologic effect. Uh, and MDMA has been around for a long time. It was discovered over a hundred years ago and it was brought into more of people's awareness and understanding about 40 to 50 years ago. And then it's gone through this arc of now more and more resurgence, appreciation, understanding. And as a result, people are creating more and more analogs and also trying to uh, crack the code of MDMA's effect and maybe even a, be a little cleaner because it, it's an amphetamine derivative. So it can be hot on the nerve receptors. So when a person goes through an experience, they can feel depleted for the next day or two or three. So particularly people with depression, if they already have a sensitive serotonin system, then they might go through a bit of a crash on the other side. And that has to be watched for and paid attention to. And there are ways to alleviate that and, and help people reconstitute on the other side. Not everybody, I should say this at, you know, probably at the beginning of our conversation, but not everybody's ready for any ex psychedelic or altered state experience, much less MDMA. Um, it's important for people to have some degree of self-regulation, uh, content, education, training, experience, and availability. So like, for example, being able to self-regulate, come back to your breath when we feel like we're anxious or out of our center, 
um, when we're really thrown off or that fear response starts to get triggered? What does it look like to be able to come back to a place of stability internally? Those kind, this is just, you know, uh, looking at it from broad strokes here, but that kind of training and self-regulation is highly beneficial when people start doing this kind of work. And it starts to help a person auto-regulate both consciously, anytime we learn something new, we do it consciously, but then through habit repetition, we eventually gain unconscious mastery and it kind of becomes autopilot. So helping people retrain their nervous system is highly effective, not only before, but like through the process so that they're retelling the new story, that psychology, while they're rewiring a new experience of uh, like nervous system valence and stability. That's, that's the neurology and the hardware piece. So we come back to these dancing with each other, right? Software and hardware. And I do think we're going to see more and more novelty in the psychedelic space. A lot of the money that's getting poured into psychedelic therapy and research right now is looking at novel analogs. Uh, so I think there's, to me, it, it, it's interesting for sure. Um, but I don't also want uh, this transformational medicine movement to be continuously oriented towards dialing certain neurochemistry profiles to have a particular effect. Uh, if we're only doing that and not looking at the substance of what's actually getting rewoven, rewired, and reconnected, the person's full sense of self and the availability to become a whole, intact, awakened, mature human that is fit for service and and serving the collective in a good way. And if we're not looking at that, what I would call the soul-centered medicine aspect of it, and we're just talking about like fiddling with molecular bonds and making new analogs, then we're still essentially in the current psychiatric model, which is still highly pharmaceutical-based. It's highly reductionistic. We've lost over the last several decades, we've lost a lot of our humanity in how we practice psychiatry. Psyche means soul. And as psychiatrists, we should be physicians of the soul as much as we are physicians of the mind, as much as we are physicians of the brain. And all of that, I think, is slowly starting to get recalibrated and oriented to its ideal expression. Yeah, no, absolutely. And MDMA is obviously unique in terms of its psychotherapy or therapeutic application. So will psychiatrists require further certification to ad administer MDMA? Or what mm -hmm. does the future look like in terms yeah. of its scalability? Yeah, MAPS is the lead agent. They are the primary partners with the feds, the DEA particularly. Uh, and they are offering all of the education for physicians and therapists to be trained to be MAPS providers, facilitators, or involved in some other aspect of its therapeutic rollout. So yeah, we have excellent um, therapeutic educational models. Uh, I think those will continue to evolve and continue to strengthen. And from there, there are other organizations that are offering training and uh, in-person experiences with other medicines too. 
ketamine is legal and now it's very much on the landscape. Um, and psilocybin will become legal at well, as well at, at some point. It's already legal therapeutically in Oregon. Uh, that was just recent and they haven't, they haven't rolled out that entire regulatory process. So as, as far as its applicability and entry into the market, I think that's going to be another 18 or so months out. But one state's already gone legal with psilocybin therapy. So it's going to happen. And those are just three medicines. There's many other medicines that I do think eventually will become legal. So um, the therapeutic training models are, are imperative and they're quickly being um, collated and put together. Some are extraordinarily good and some are just okay. Um, but like it is with any new industry, you're gonna have a variety of people. Like, you know, and any, like if you think of cars, you know, if I look at this particular car versus that particular car, I could be looking at something very different and yet there's still modes of transportation. So there are therapeutic models and training programs out there, some of which are phenomenal, and some of which are are growing into their into their robustness. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess that does seem to be we doubt we are entering maturity in terms of what that I guess psychotherapy model looks like. You've got clear preparation, experience, mm -hmm. integration. I think that is pretty clear across the board. There's obviously different um, discrepancies between other aspects of it, but I think it's quite clear that, you know, there's preparation, the experience and integration. I think that is obviously at the core of it. And mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. There, there will be different um, modes of, of transport in terms of healing. It was interesting yesterday, I, I bumped into someone at the store um, and I was talking about MDMA and I said, I was, I was about to do a podcast the next day. Um, and he hadn't heard of, well, he had heard of MDMA before, but he, he was, he said that he'd tried microdosing MDMA, which I was a little bit shocked by. Obviously there's becoming very common and in the media about microdosing classical psychedelics, but it's quite surprising to hear that someone was trying to do that. And this was probably, he said it was 18 months ago and it said it, it really helped him. He'd been on antidepressants and he'd reduced his um, quantity of antidepressants. And, you know, we've got into a conversation of, you know, how it desensitizes certain, you know, serotonin receptors when you're taking antidepressants. But I was like, well, that could be a, an interesting point of conversation in this podcast. He said he was taking, I think, 0.2 of a dose. Mm. I can't remember the, the frequency of it, but it was, it was very surprising to me. Have you heard of that before, microdosing MDMA? Uh, like with the because there's obviously a clear refractory period mm. in that you don't get the same effect for weeks, months later. Totally. But do, do you see any efficacy there? It's a great question. Um, yes, I've heard of microdosing MDMA. It's not a classic medicine that is typically microdosed. You know, if people mm. are talking about microdosing medicines, they're typically speaking about psilocybin, LSD. Those are the two big ones. Others as well. Um, but microdosing MDMA, not as much, partly because it's hot on the receptors. It's an amphetamine derivative, you know, and to be true, so is Ritalin and Adderall. They work very much pharmacologically like speed does. Um, but what we do know over a long period of time is because they're so hot on the receptors, they can generate 
what's called neuronal pruning, or they can inhibit new neuronal growth. And as a result, it's not recommended that people be on stimulants for long periods of time. Now, that's not what he was speaking about. He was talking about microdosing, it sounded like for a relatively short period of time in order to help them get off of pharmaceuticals. You know, I can't advocate that. It's not legal. You have to really know your legal landscape. I don't think it's advisable, um, but I can understand the rationale. And it sounded like it was beneficial. Um, so one, one conservative approach might say, oh yeah, well, he was lucky. Um, and I can see it from that angle. And I can also see it from the angle like, well, this was somebody who was uh, depressed and you're using something like speed that also has a feel good factor, then why not give that a try at least? Um, so I can understand the rationale. Still in practice, I would that needs to be done in the company of advisorship and mentorship and guidance with some degree of a trained professional that knows neurochemistry because they're, that could have gone poorly it can really wire people. It can cause a significant adrenal fatigue because it is an, an amphetamine derivative. Um, it can cause a variety of long-term negative ramifications depending on how long you're using it or how frequently you're using or the dose you're using it. He's talking about 0.2 of a dose and most microdosing is around that same kind of orientation. And this comes from a person's work that you mentioned before, James Fadiman. You've got a James, he's just a, an incredible human. Um, and he's a godfather in this kind of work. He's been in it for a long time. And uh, Dr. Fadiman's work um, is highlighting the benefits of microdosing. And you can go to his website and there are thousands of case reports of benefits of microdosing. Um, and the usual kind of orientation to microdosing is 0.1 or one-tenth of a journey dose. Uh, people do take up to 0.2 or 20% of a journey dose. And the frequency would be every three days, uh, maybe more frequent. Paul Stamets has a bit of a different protocol as it relates to psilocybin. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of information out there about microdosing, but still, I think there are safer alternatives to microdosing MDMA with other targeted therapies that are supplement-based that don't have the same kind of heat factor at the receptor level. Um, and from an integrative psychiatric approach, if we were to look at that person's neurochemistry and maybe organic acid metabolites, or if there's any other organic etiology for the depression, does this person have a history of thyroid disease or a chronic viral infection or gut dysbiosis or a whole head injury, you know, et cetera. There's so many different things to look at. So if we're just, again, fiddling with the neurochemical widgets <laughs> and dials, we might get to a short-term benefit, but if we're not looking at the causative factor and the underlying issue, then we're not potentially doing the best long-term good. Uh, so, you know, again, this is where I, I get just super excited about the opportunity we have in the integrative psychiatry movement, moving towards a transformational medicine orientation that looks at the hardware and the software and being able to work with trained providers who understand both of those sciences really well to help 
the average person become whole, uh, switched on, and inspired to deliver their best service and best offering to the world. Perfect. Dr. Dan Engel, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to come and chat to me and, and our community at Mind Medicine Australia. It's really great to, to connect with you. you. You speak so beautifully and highlight so many important parts about the journey that we're going through as humans in the world and, and trying to heal ourselves and heal the planet. I think at the core of this and at the world that we live in at the moment is that we are in a mental health crisis. And first and foremost, we need to get people well. And once people are well, then we can actually really start to work better collaboratively and, and work towards healing common humanity and, and seeing a really bright future for, for humans. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close this one out? Mm, no, I don't, I don't think so. We, we covered so much good ground. Uh, I want to thank you for what you're doing as well and, and the community that you serve. And we're all part of this mission together, sharing information. You know, our duty, first and foremost, particularly from the aspect and oath of the physician is first and foremost, we should be educators and offer people as best we can unfiltered information so that they can make their own best personal choice. And then we intervene if we think that choice is going to be a negative impact or dangerous or, you know, and we also intervene if we can be of supportive and a positive intervention potential. So first and foremost, from the educational perspective, I'm just super uh, excited that more and more of this kind of information is getting out to the masses. Uh, we're certainly doing that with Kuya and our center in Austin. That's is, It's an institute for transformational medicine. And as an institute, it's equally clinical as it is educational. My goal, our goal is to not only give people fish, because a lot of people are suffering. And giving a person a fish, if they're suffering and they're starved for love and compassion and, and self-realization and just like the self-freedom, the freedom to be themselves radically, and love life fully, if they're starved of that, then yes, we want to give them a fish. We want to help nourish that starvation. We also want to teach a person how to fish and so that they can be self-reliant and self-empowered. And these are the kind of educational platforms that I think help do that. Yeah, perfect. I'll make sure I link all of the um, organizations that you work for and that you have founded um, in the links um, in the show notes. And if people are wanting to connect with you, is there any other place you can direct them? Um, yeah, I think all of the likely links that you would use, kuya.life, Dr. Dan at Kuya. Um, let's see, Full Spectrum Medicine is our educational platform for psychedelic therapies. Um, A Dose of Hope, yeah, those are you know kind of the big ones. And where I think we're going to uh, is, is this shared communal experience of what it means to be on the trajectory of transformation together. And so I have a nonprofit um, called thankyoulife.org that's oriented to helping fund people who wouldn't be able to pay for their own services because 
a lot like MDMA supported psychotherapy out of the gate is probably going to be about 12 grand per person because of the entire therapeutic arc that's required. And that's the best use. It's, it's um, like that therapeutic suite is, is ideal when you have that degree of preparation, experience, and integration, those three phases. And yet at that price point, because it's not insurance reimbursed at the moment, we're still early in this medical transition. Um, by design, unfortunately, it's going to leave out a lot of people. So thankfully, there are a lot of scholarship organizations happening. We happen to run one in particular uh, called Think You Life. And, and my orientation and desire is to have everybody supported to the experience of being able to come to that place in their own lives where they just give massive gratitude. Like, thank you for my opportunity to be alive in this one short, very precious life and do our, do our best to help uh, each other come to that at some point. Once again, thank you, Dan, for your mm -hmm. time, energy, and wisdom. It's been very insightful listening to you, and it really does get me excited. I'm sure anyone who you're listening to this will feel inspired by the work that, that you do and, and everyone else is doing to, to get us forward. So once again, mm -hmm. thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, I, I do feel so touched after I just listened back to that episode and feel so inspired by the work that he does and that so many people are doing around the world that are integrating ancient wisdom into modern psychiatry. I really think that's the way forward here and it really feels like we're getting closer, we're getting better to a place where everyone can access medicines that can heal them and that can improve their lives drastically. So it's exciting. And we're coming to a point now in the world where as these medicines are being more widely accepted and understood and more people are getting healed by these medicines, I really think I feel positive about all of this. And I'm sure that you feel it too. But that's it from me. Thank you very, very much. If you're still here, make sure you leave a review or subscribe to the podcast or support in any way that you can, whether it's zero cost or a financial support that is totally up to you, but I'll see you here for the next one.